Okay, well, good morning and welcome to the latest edition of Castaway. Um, unprecedented news and unprecedented times, I believe, is, is our catchphrase. So this morning we have Tom from Singapore uh, and myself and Kerry uh, here in London. Um, good morning. We will start off this morning um, looking at our various news articles uh, and we will start with Tom, who has an article about Singapore this morning. Yeah, uh, morning guys. Uh, article from Bloomberg from me this morning, uh, looking at um, Singapore and how it's positioning itself to capture the fallout from the Cold War between uh, the US and China. So as that rhetoric is being getting ramped up and Trump is looking at forcing sanctions and forcing sales of companies X, Y, and Z. Uh, Singapore, in the last couple of weeks, or this week actually, has uh, been able to announce some fairly big news in terms of scalps that it has seemed to have secured in terms of um, big investment from major Chinese uh, tech companies that have said, you know, we will hub our business uh, in the region now in Singapore as opposed to Beijing or Hong Kong where they've previously been. So I think everyone is familiar with the TikTok story and um, the US or, or Donald Trump forcing ByteDance to divest TikTok as it's now deemed a national security risk to the US. Um, yeah. Though whether or not Oracle gets that over the line in the next couple of days remains to be seen. But ByteDance, the owner of TikTok, has announced that they will set up an office uh, and hub their Southeast Asia business, at least out of Singapore. Um, so that was the first one. Then Alibaba have announced that they will um, have a big setup down here as well. Um with them investing $3 billion into Grab, which is the sort of Southeast Asian equivalent of Uber. Um, and Tencent as well have announced in the last few days that they will be setting up a big office in Singapore as well. So it seems that with all the heat uh, that's being put on China by the rest of the world at the moment, um, Singapore is sort of looking to welcome uh, a lot of Chinese uh, companies that are looking to de-risk themselves in terms of their exposure to China and their ability to do business with the rest of the world, but also um, some of the oversight that I guess is coming from China as well at the moment uh, in, in terms of what we've been seeing in Hong Kong um, is not necessarily that favourable for international businesses as well. Uh, and also there's a big shake-up of the banking system in Singapore going on at the moment uh, where a new banking category has been uh, sort of created uh, virtual banks uh, and one of the big sort of uh, positives of that uh, new category of bank that's been created is that it gives you uh, access to the US financial network essentially uh, outside of China. Um, so Tencent have applied for a banking license, Grab have applied for a banking license um, <clears throat> and ByteDance have applied for one of these banking licenses as well. So some potentially very interesting moves going on uh, and certainly some good news for for the Singaporean economy over the short to medium term. Um, but will be interesting to see how it plays out with the dynamics that have come into Singapore post the recent election around uh, employment passes, um, the sort of Singaporean equivalent of a visa uh, for foreign workers. Uh, and that, that that's got a lot a lot more difficult to come by um, 
as as Singapore is trying to protect its own. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and how they balance the uh, the need for jobs and and in, in investment versus the the need for jobs for Singaporeans. So um, absolutely, Tom. And, and we've said on this podcast before, I think that you know China's moves in Hong Kong amounted to to sort of throwing down the gauntlet to. Uh, to the Western world in terms of uh, trade structures and trade rules. And, uh, you know, anecdotally, everything I hear from friends in Hong Kong tends to support what you're saying, which is that Singapore is the ultimate beneficiary of this, ironically, not uh, Shanghai or Beijing. So, so um, what just, how, how does China respond, you know, to sort of recapture these disappearing businesses? Do they have to sort of readdress their PR or are they going to, is it going to be a, a more firmer approach where they introduce, uh, you know, tax incentives or how do they go about addressing this flight to safety? I mean, they're, I, I, they're not exiting China completely. Let's let's be clear; they are just setting up a, you know, a a presence in Singapore, a fairly big investment presence in Singapore. But they they are not divesting from China completely. So much of their business is built around China and accessing the Chinese market um, for their Chinese consumers. But for the international parts of their business, that that is what's being hubbed in in in, in Singapore, seemingly, and. I think how China responds, I guess, will have to will be driven ultimately by over the next six to twelve months what what plays out in terms of, or well, even over the next three months. I mean, let's get to November first. If, if if there's a Biden victory in in the US uh, on the third or whatever it actually may be called of November in uh, in the US, then I think the the China rhetoric will probably come down a little bit. Um, so. I think a lot of see. I'm also not sure if Xi Jinping actually cares that much. I, I think his attitude very much has been to focus on the domestic market and, and development of China's domestic market. Uh, and, I, and I think he understood very well that the actions in Hong Kong would would effectively alienate uh, the position of that city as a, as a gateway. Um, and, and I'm not sure he cares to necessarily replace that you know, one for one with Shanghai or any other Chinese city. Um, I, I think that he understood that there would be a certain flight to safety in Singapore and he's willing to take that risk. So it'll be interesting to see how China responds. Okay, brilliant. All right. Um, well, we can pop on or move on from there. Um, and our next uh, topic is actually mine, my news article for today, which is, I'm just bringing it up now, bear with me. It's about Europe's electricity and how it could be 80% fossil fuel free by 2030. Now, a lot of people recently have asked me why, you know, on this podcast, I am um, so into renewable energy. And a friend asked me recently why I like wind power so much. And I said it's because I'm a big metal fan. Um, now, moving on to the news article about, and this is from Reuters, about 80% of the, it says that 80% of European Union's electricity could be fossil fuel free by 2030 regardless of whether the European economy faces a prolonged economic crisis or not. Europe's electricity could be 80% fossil fuel-free by 2030, Reuters says. As much as 80% of the European Union's electricity could be fossil fuel-free by 2030, regardless of whether the European economy faces a prolonged economic crisis. Euroelectric represents European National Electric Associations and leading national electric companies. And in the first half of this year, two-thirds of electricity generated in the EU was carbon-free. Renewables generation accounted for 40% of electricity mix and fossil fuel generation, and that dropped by 18% year-on-year to 34%, is what the report tells us. 
Um, so Christian Ruby, who's Secretary General of this Euroelectric, says this year the power sector has proven its crucial value for society by providing hospitals, government offices and millions of home working Europeans with clean and reliable power throughout the pandemic. So it seems that this renewable energy, you know, it's, it's, we all know it's not a phase, but it's taking on again, like this sort of PR where they're, where they're saying it's not just helping the environment, but we're providing, you know, societal worth. I mean, wh what do you guys think of that? Is this just an economic point, uh, an economic thing, renewable energy, or is it really going to change life for the better and make us better humans? Well, I, I, I think that the, the process is underway regardless of, of what the motivations are. I mean, the UK went through, I think we mentioned before, what was it, 150 days this year without using coal uh, in, in its power grid. Uh, and I assume that's the same for most of the other European nations. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the change is manifesting itself regardless of what our motivations for it are. Yeah, uh, and I think the restrictions due to COVID nineteen. I mean, that, that's delayed a lot of projects, and it's sort of you know put a dampener on procedures, and we're going to have to sort of realign policies. So, you know, our traditional energy sources are going to sort of disappear. And one trader I was speaking to earlier on this week, um, who was being sort of uh, looked at for an oil job, said to me she wouldn't look at it because oil is dead. So, I mean, from, from that side of the market, people are beginning to sort of realign their views. I mean, you only have to look at the noise coming out of BP and how dramatically their strategy has changed, on paper anyway, in the, yeah. in the last three months. I mean, if oil gets above $100 again consistently, it would be interesting to see if BP's attitude towards green and the future of oil and peak oil, et cetera, et cetera, is quite so... Um, uh, or it reflects how it does currently today, because I, you know, I think a lot of this drive is is price motivated. Um, but there's a huge amount of investment to be done by BP and the and the others, and the revenues there to pay it are not going to be as forthcoming with oil around forty forty five dollars where it is currently. I mean, what if, what but, if we can't afford to be fossil fuel free? What if to kickstart our economy to get us back to life as normal, we need to rely on fossil fuels and, and the employment that they tend to bring. You know, it's a it's a big sacrifice to go for. I'm, I'm not sure that they bring that much employment anymore, though. Do they? Okay. I mean, in the U.S. in the U.S., a total of sixty thousand jobs, I believe I read, are, are now the, the the grand sum of all coal related positions. Uh, whereas I think new energy and, and renewables employs about half a million people. So I'm not sure the jobs are in fossil fuel. Okay. Exxon dropped out of the Dow last week as well, and that was the most valuable company in the world 10, 12 years ago. Um, yeah, it's not even in the, the list of top 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 companies in the US any longer. So there is, but there has been a seismic shift. Um, I do think, you know, you look at the developing world or the you know, <clears throat> you know less developed nations that are still on a sort of industrialization curve that sort of Europe and the and the US went through a long time ago. They are still going to need access to cheap. Um, cheap energy uh, and unless the world the rest of the world is prepared to backstop that you're going to have a very hard time telling someone that they can't burn cheap indo coal uh, they have to burn more expensive solar but if solar as we're seeing in europe and and wind power as we're seeing in europe is is now cheaper um then i think economics will dictate um but it's the basic question that that quite often gets like raised and some of the stuff that we're seeing in, in California, a lot of that's been in, been weather driven, but you know, they've been brownouts and blackouts in California. And that, that is because 
some of the renewable generation that they do have there is not able to provide the base load um, that, yeah. that, that, that fossil fuels do provide. So yeah, they're, they're, there's still that hurdle to overcome. It's not a perfect solution well, yet. I couldn't worry. As Trump said, things will just cool back down shortly. So, uh, so. okay. No, fair enough. All right. Well, that article is from Reuters, and we will now move on to Kerry's article of choice. Yeah. It's about aluminium tariffs. That's right. Mine is from the BBC, and uh, it's titled U.S. Backs Off Canadian Aluminium Tariffs. And I think this is interesting in two ways. Um, what's happened is the U.S. has unilaterally dropped a plan to impose 10% tariffs on, on all Canadian aluminium imports. Um uh, and what's interesting to me about this is, A, that it was a unilateral move by Trump um, fighting for his political life. He's suddenly realized that I guess he should quiet down some of the, the trade wars that he's kicked off. So so this this was not in return for any favors by Canada or any, any specific action. It, it simply was a unilateral move to drop these tariffs. Um, but secondly, in a more practical sense and on a product that we cover very actively, uh, aluminium premiums, uh, it's caused the uh, the American alley premiums to absolutely plunge. Uh, everyone had been expecting these tariffs to come into force. So we've seen a, a substantial drop, um, you know, circa sort of 15, 20% overnight on uh, on the uh, the AUP uh, aluminium premium contract, uh, the, the American Midwest aluminium premium contract. Um, so yeah, I found this, uh, I found this very topical in those uh, in those two ways. Uh, do you see any other tariffs coming in around that sort of area that he might use to increase his popularity or to, to garner some report, uh, support? I, I'm not sure that he sees many of these as a victory besides the Chinese ones, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I, I think that at this moment in time, uh, he's probably struggling for, for a bit more political support from various allies and wants to calm things down rather than increase tensions. So uh, so it seems to me more likely than not that he actually drops a few more of these tariffs vis-a-vis uh, -vis Europe and Canada and Mexico than he does uh, increase them. Okay, interesting. All right. Anything else from you there, Tom, or, or should we move on? No, that's all for me. Okay, so we'll move on to talking a bit about the market movements and how they've operated in the last couple of days. Um, Kerry, I'll bring you back in to give us a bit of a discussion about dry freight, please. Well, you know, the dry freight market, Alex, is feeling a bit like the film Groundhog Day at the moment, I've got to say, uh, especially on the Capes. Um, after slipping fairly sharply in the previous week, uh, the big ships continued to fall until late last week when we saw a sudden bounce on Friday and continuing into Monday before uh, they resumed their slips. So the net result is that the spot 5TC average remains at uh, 15664 today, which is less than 200 bucks above where we were this time last week. Um, the Panamaxes, again, had that similar feeling. Uh, they had a week that resulted in a net near zero change with uh, the 4TC index stuck at uh, 10356, just about $500 under where we were at the end of last week. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. And what about you, Tom? Have you got anything for us on iron ore today? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of price, uh, it's been a, a lively couple of weeks since we last talked about this. So uh, if we hark back 14 days, uh, the iron ore October contract, I'll use as our reference point now, was trading around 124 and a quarter. 
uh, and the Q1 trading 110 spot 75. Um, last week, we dropped to 121 on the Oct uh, and 108.40 on the Q1. And as of today, the October is uh, trading around 117.5 and the Q1 104. Nine. So we've seen a big correction, uh, accelerated largely in the early part of this week. Um, uh, but I think a lot of that is for reasons we've been talking about over the last uh, last few months. I mean, China imports uh, in terms of iron ore imports dropped quite sharply uh, last week. Um, 100 million tonnes last week versus 112 million the week before. Both strong months um, in terms of the year-to-date average, but China imports uh, month on month have, have dropped off quite considerably, uh, down about 12%, uh, but still up on the yearly average. Um, those Vale numbers that we normally draw reference to, um, Vale figures dropped uh, quite considerably in the last couple, uh, in the last week. Um, so Vale were down 13% to an eight-week low, um, and but Rio Tinto uh, up quite strongly. So I think Gary will talk about some of the shipping rates, C3 and the C5, possibly later. But though those movements have been directly borne out in the uh, in the Cape market as well. Um, in terms of what we think is driving this this sharp move down, I think it's finally uh, a realization of the real supply and demand, or more the oversupply in the steel market. We've been talking about steel inventory build for weeks months now even um and that that inventory level is is extremely high uh and some construction numbers that came out uh in the last few days have actually been quite weak or a lot weaker than analysts were expecting so combination of massive oversupply and and weaker domestic construction numbers in china have sort of led to a bit of a sell-off um and we've seen a lot of new shorts opening on the DCE, on the onshore contract in the last couple of days, which has sort of helped force it down a bit further as well. Um, there's still a lot of congestion uh, in the Chinese ports, so a lot of big ships waiting to discharge a significant amount of ore. Um, and as soon as that starts to move, the market will be flooded as well. Um, so I think we're everyone is sort of positioning now for a bit more of a, a move to the downside. And we broke some technical levels uh, on the onshore contract earlier this week as well. Um, so also the, uh, there's port stocks, Tom, I believe, jumped quite a bit. I, I have 120 million tons overall in the top 40 Chinese ports. Yeah, which which is up about 20% in two weeks. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, so uh, and that, that will be that backlog of, of congested vessels starting to discharge and that, that significant over or significant new supply flowing into the market and, and forcing it down. The other thing as well is we've been talking about steel margins consistently week on week and how they've been getting weaker and weaker. Well, they're now the lowest we've seen all year. Um, so, uh, the coking coal price um, has has really roofed in the last couple of days. Uh, back in the last week, in the start of this week, putting more pressure on steel margins. So that that is now being borne out in the futures market on iron ore as well, as as mills are no longer to be able to accept these sort of outrageously high iron ore prices. So it's sort of doing what we've been expecting it to do for a number of even uh it's taken a long time to get here but i don't think anyone is surprised um but it'll be interesting to see how this plays out now i think you know, there's 
there is a lot of reason to suggest that it could keep coming off. Um, but you know, if Japan starts, we've heard that before. Uh, we've heard that before. In fact, I recall making that prediction several months ago. Yeah, so. exactly. So it, it's it's a yeah more fun and games in iron ore basically, which is I know I repeat basically on a weekly basis. But it, it is a, a very active, a very interesting market to be involved in at the moment. So I don't know if it's just because I've been on holiday, but it seems that Brazil's been less in the focus. Is that is that the case? Are they less? As a factor at the moment in, in sort of both freight and iron ore uh, movements? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just in terms of the shipping, um, Brazil has been, frankly, flat and fairly uninteresting um, uh, in, in purely freight terms, of course. Um, the, uh, the demand just has not been there the way we have seen in the previous few weeks um, from the big miners in Brazil. And so uh, some small see-through demand from the smaller shippers has, has sort of kept things ticking along, but without any of that extreme demand, I think we were expecting from Vale and, and secondarily CSN to really drive this, drive this market up a bit more. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. Anything else that you guys want to add from freight or iron ore before we, before we move yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, on, on the freight, the congestion levels have definitely continue to drop. I think Tom referred to that as well as the, the ships begin to discharge, certainly the, their iron ore in China. But, you know, a key congestion point was the uh, the COVID restrictions on crew changeovers, which had been causing, you know, these horror stories that we've been hearing about of ships waiting, you know, over 30 days of port for a, for a crew changeover. That has gone down dramatically. So the overall tonnage supply on the Capes has been healthier in both basins, which is really what's capped rates, I think, from moving too far up. Um, and, and really the same is true on the Panamaxes, particularly in the Pacific. They've seen a steadily increasing tonnage list in the East that's had the same effect. Um, and so despite this sort of recent rush uh, of demand out of Australia, um, again, as Tom referred to with, uh, with Rio shipping quite a bit more in the last couple of weeks, uh, there was this view that C5 might rescue the capes, but, uh, you know, we, we sort of went up to the mid-high $7 per ton, and we've come right back down to about 7.15 at the, the last look. So, um, and as we discussed, Brazil's been fairly flat. Uh, there is a, still some optimism that demand will increase out of Brazil in October um, for October shipping dates, but, uh, but we have yet to see that really drive rates north. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, so I think just before we head off, I'll just add a bit more about tankers. And this is written by Brandon Kayser on the tankers desk. And it's available on our LinkedIn page and also on our app if you want to read more. Um, I'll just give you a taster of it. And he has written a number of little articles. And I've chosen this one, which he's named Floating Storage Version 0.2. So as tanker freight rates have been sitting at all-time lows, the crude contango has started to widen, creating a gap in the market for floating storage plays to become viable again, he says. Um, the contango structure occurs when the price for prompt crude delivery is lower than for future delivery, allowing a cash and carry arbitrage to occur. Obviously, we know this. Uh, these potential new floating storage plays are evident by some large crude traders fixing vessels on time charter. These fixtures are not specified to be for floating storage, but the nature of a time charter rather than voyage <clears throat> would suggest these vessels will be used for storage. Now, it seems that uh, Trafigura seems to be leading the field with several vessels fixed, according to Tradewinds, and they have been fixed from anywhere between three to nine months, ranging from $20,500 $20, to $42,000 a day. 
On the paper side, the VLCC rates hit a low of around $6,000 a day, which is well below OPEX levels, not an ideal scenario for owners at all. But for charterers and crew traders, low TC rates allow plenty of room for potential floating storage plays. TD3C has seen a dramatic improvement in rates from recent historic lows. And as of today, the spot is up to 37.92 on the world scale from last week's value of 29.13. This is a very big increase of 26% and a significant jump after recently reaching five years low. Um, so it looks like the, the whole capacity and storage play is coming back into into play and will be probably last time round all the trading houses directionally from conversations and, and you know, reading articles in the paper seemed to be the same way on it um they all had the same view but vtol actually announced today or, or yesterday um that they don't see that as a as the trade now they think there'll be a continual um, continual <clears throat> draw, uh, and that you know the the storage play isn't going to come into play. Um, so there's a divergent opinion from Vitol relative Trafigura uh, this time round. When I think last time round, they were pretty much all broadly speaking on the same side of that trade. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as well. For sure, we shall see next week. Okay, well, I think if no one else has got anything to add, that will be it from us this week for for the Castaway Podcast. So thank you very much, guys, and um, we will see you again next week. Thanks, Charles.